Hi, I'm Jane Whitney. Welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. On every episode, we bring together diverse voices from across the nation to discuss the most pressing and controversial issues of our time, issues that make a difference in your life. On October 10th, a bipartisan panel of top political strategists brainstormed about whether the Republican Party needs a reboot. The Republican Party isn't doomed, it's dead. The party of Lincoln isn't about conservative ideals anymore and has morphed into a malign force that's endangering our democracy. So say the critics. But not so fast, say GOP fans. Republicans are reaping the rewards of an electoral juggernaut they've built over 40 years, and they're favored to flip Congress during next year's midterm elections. Here to talk about whether the party's over or on a roll are four top political strategists. Kristen Soltis Anderson, a leading Republican pollster and columnist. Matt Dowd, political commentator and campaign strategist. Robert Gibbs, former White House press secretary for President Barack Obama. And Tara Setmayer, former GOP congressional communications director. And you are the perfect panel to tackle this topic today. Tara, I'm going to start with you. We're going to get into a more granular analysis as to what's going on with the GOP. But first, let's start with the top lines. You were a loyal Republican for 25 years. And then after the 2020 election, suddenly I see you giving a very personal, emotional renouncement of the party and basically saying, even though you thought you might stay to keep them accountable, that you were getting out. What was the tipping point for you? Well, thank you so much for having me, Jane. This is an important conversation because there are, I think, many of us who are right of center that feel politically homeless in this day and age with the direction and the path that the Republican Party has chosen to take in the era of Trump and uh, post Trump's presidency. And for me, the decision um, to finally step away where I felt that the party was irreparable was once Donald Trump went out on election night and claimed election fraud, where we know that there wasn't any, and started this really destructive big lie, questioning and undermining our election integrity. And Republican leaders who know better, the McConnells, the McCarthys, the people who have been around a long time, um, enabled him. They did not chastise him. They did not rebuke it. They allowed him to get away with spreading this big lie, which we saw ultimately culminate with a, with a violent insurrection on the Capitol on January 6th. But that seemed to me, um, throughout the era of Trump, obviously, I saw a lot of hypocrisy and disappointing um decisions by Republican leaders who, like I said, I spent uh, over 25 years in the party who I thought would have um, provided more guardrails for what Trump was doing. But their pure political power and desire for that clearly overtook any any set of principles they claim to believe. Um, but I thought, OK, I can perhaps make a difference from within. But once something so constitutionally fundamental was under direct attack and Republicans did not do anything about it to stand up to him and say enough is enough, that was it for me. I recognized that the the party was going down a slippery slope into an area that seemed to me uh, immediately was not a place that I was welcome in or that I could do, do any more uh, good to try to right that ship. And I felt that I'd be better off on the outside speaking out about this. And if it meant starting something new or being part of another movement, um, but I could no longer associate myself with a party that is 
basically succumb to the slippery slope of of uh, authoritarianism, in my opinion. And it's such an anti-democratic movement. It was no longer representative for me. All right. But let me ask you something, because you we know, all know that the Republican Party is really good at winning. There's so much winning. And right now, there are more Republican governors than there are Democratic governors. Uh, fully 54% of the legislative seats nationally are held by Republicans, much many more than Democrats. You know, the Senate is 50-50. And in the House, there are a whisper, a whisper edge away from flipping the House. So the point is, there is a lot of, a, a lot of strength there. Are you saying that you don't think that the Republican Party, you think the Republican Party does need a re reboot? You think they should totally start from scratch? What do you think should happen with the Republican Party? They are, right? Republicans are much better at winning and messaging and uh, creating a sense of urgency and fear and ginning up their base. We saw that. And it's not necessarily about policy anymore. The party's become um, this mechanism of fear and division, us versus them. And they're doing this under the, what I think is the perverted auspices of patriotism, which it, it, which it isn't. Um, and, but they're very good at it. And unfortunately, for anything to change in a political environment, the only repudiation is losing at the at the ballot box. And that even though right. Trump right. may have lost in, in November, Trumpism did not. And because it wasn't fully repudiated at the ballot box, the Republican Party has felt that they can still hitch their wagon to this, which I think is dangerous and poses an existential threat to our democracy. Um, and in my opinion, the current Republican Party, it should be burned to the ground because it does not represent what the Republican Party of Lincoln or of Reagan or even of Bush, for goodness sakes, represented anymore. Um, and I'm not quite sure how you wrestle that back from these dangerous underpinnings within the party now that it's now more the party of Trump uh, and going in that direction as opposed to the party of, of Reagan or Lincoln or what it was originally founded on. Matt, we've got one burn to the ground from Tara. I'm going to ask you because you've been on both sides of the aisle. Um, most recently, well, let me just talk about the fact you were attracted to J President George W. Bush because of his um, uniter, not a divider theme. And so you helped him win the White House. You helped him win a second term. How do you rate the GOP at this point in terms of its uh, strength as a party? So I can give you a short answer. I'm running as a Democrat for Lieutenant Governor of Texas um, because I believe that the only path forward right now to uh, in a total agreement with much of what Tara said to repudiate the party, which will not reform from within. There, if they were going to reform from within, there would be there would be large elements of it doing that. They're not going to do it unless they lose in a very uh, profound way up and down the ballot. It's the only way if we if we want a other political party that is a conservative party that's enlightened like we used to have the only way they're going to get there is not from reform from within is to lose badly enough that they know they have to change from where their current trajectory is and so i thought january 6 was a crucial moment in our country's history i think it's the greatest attack on our democracy since the opening shot of the civil war and that was bad enough, but then the Republicans' response to that, which is hold no one accountable, enable the situation, and do that. And I think we have to separate two things. I think we have to separate where the country is and where, where Republicans are. Republicans are dead even in this country on holding power. That's a fact. They're dead even on holding a power. The country's not there. The country right. as a whole is not there. The Republicans haven't won a popular vote victory since 
I did Bush's campaign in 2004. Right. The country is way over here. The problem is, and this is, I'm sure, a conversation we'll have, the problem, which is why we're right. likely in a constitutional crisis, the way the system is currently operating, they could, because of the sorting out of the American public in different jurisdictions and gerrymandering and all these other things, they can hold power even though their belief system and where they're at today is a minority belief system of where the country is. But they definitely hold 50% of the power in the country at an elected official level. They don't hold that 50% of the power in a broad expanse of the American public. Kristen, uh, you wrote a piece talking about how at one point uh, the Republican Party, we talk about the party of ideas, stood for strong defense, limited government, traditional social um, conservatism. And now there's something very different happening. The voters, Republican voters want something different. Talk about what they want. When you ask Republican voters what issues are top of mind for them, you find issues like immigration, crime and safety, the economy, um, especially inflation tends to be something that Republicans talk about a lot these days because it's a, a primary reason why economic growth as we recover from the pandemic isn't being as felt by average Americans. Those are the kinds of issues that, that really animate Republican voters. A challenge the party has is that at the moment, you have someone like Donald Trump, who is a very prominent leader in the party, who still has the support of a large portion of the party. And he doesn't talk about those sorts of issues so much. Um, he recently did a, a rally in Iowa where he stood up and you know had remarks that were sort of written for him all about those very issues that I just talked to you about, immigration, crime, China, inflation, uh, et cetera. And yet all he wanted to talk about was the 2020 election and talking about the the Right. The fiction that he would have uh, legitimately won. Um, and that's not actually an issue that I see in my research as being a top motivating issue for Republicans. It's true that a large percentage of Republicans do believe that the 2020 election um, was wasn't valid, that, that Donald Trump should be the, the rightful president. But it's also not necessarily the top issue for them. Um, one thing that I, I've done in a recent survey was ask Republican voters to rate whether various characteristics would make them absolutely more interested in voting for a candidate, uh, absolutely less interested in voting for a candidate, or if it wouldn't matter at all. Um, and the candidate qualities that were the most popular were that they would support an America first agenda on issues like immigration and trade, um, that they would fight vigorously against uh, the Democrats, and that they would work to try to achieve things in a bipartisan fashion, which it's funny, anytime if you've been doing opinion research long enough, you see people hold views that you might think they're pretty contradictory. I think two and three on that list might not seem like they line right up. But toward the bottom of the list were things like agrees with Donald Trump that the election was stolen, has a personality like Donald Trump. So I think it's important to sift out what pieces of Donald Trump's legacy are really driving sort of the mainstream of the party and which pieces of Donald Trump's sort of personality and personal agenda around 2020 are the big focus of sort of the activist class in the GOP these days. Actually, um, the latest research out of the University of Chicago, nearly one in five Americans think the election was stolen. I mean, it's a, it's a, that's a big number. 21 million don't think it would be, mm -hmm. would be terrible if they had to use violence um, to restore Mr. Trump to the presidency. So, you know, do you see that sort of influence in the polling that you're doing? Do you, is, is that something that that um, is top of mind for people? Uh, the winning seems to be top of mind for Republican voters. 
winning is very important to Republican voters these days. And frankly, that was a prime piece of Donald Trump's appeal was he promised them that they would do a lot of winning when he didn't win in 2020. Part of the reason why he has doubled down so hard on the fact that his he didn't really lose is because that is the core brand tenet he brings to the parties. You have to stick with me because I'm a winner. Um, we are living in extremely divided times. You know, there's research that shows it was something like nine of 10 Trump voters believed that if Biden won, it would do lasting and serious harm to the country and vice versa. Um, so we have a lot of Americans now who view their own side as being very weak. The other side is being extremely powerful, and therefore they are willing to take a sort of ends justify the means approach to obtaining power or to destroying the other side because they view the stakes as being so high. And yet Gallup in the first quarter of this year recorded the largest drop off of Republicans from the Republican Party. Um, it's the largest gap since 2012 between voters who identify as Democrats and voters who identify as Republicans. So what is driving, what's driving that exodus of Republicans from the party? That exodus is because Republicans have been losing voters in places like the suburbs, um, underperforming with younger voters uh, for, for the last couple of election cycles now. And that's beginning to do the sort of damage that over the long term will be very hard for the party to repair. Now, the reason why Republicans have not sort of gone to the drawing board and said, well, we need to do an autopsy like we did in 2012 is because, frankly, the autopsy they did in 2012, it was Donald Trump who threw that playbook out the window and wound up winning the presidency. And so you combine that with the fact that many Republicans don't even necessarily feel that they did lose the last election. And there hasn't been any real moment of kind of introspection and saying, well, what do we need to do to reshore up our majorities? A challenge the GOP may be facing is that they do have a lot of folks who decided to vote for Donald Trump, but are, are not necessarily tied to the Republican Party. And so what happens in, say, a midterm election when you have Democrats very fired up to try to prevent Republicans from taking further power, but the Republican coalition involving a lot of voters who really only turn out to vote when Donald Trump is on the ballot? It's good if you're Donald Trump. That's not necessarily a helpful dynamic if you're the Republican Party. Right. That's a tough needle to thread. Robert, you were known as the Barack Obama whisperer, and you helped him with his communications from the time I think he was running for Senate through his 2008 presidential run. And then you were the White House press secretary. So messaging is in your DNA, Robert. And I want to know what you think the message of the Republican Party is right now. What is it that they're, they're pitching right now? Uh, I think it's become uh, an inward nativist um, identity politics party. Um, I, I think, you know, when you originally asked the question at the beginning of this, you, you know, that sort of juxtaposed this idea that part of the left and maybe even part of the media thinks that Republicans are dying. I, I actually think it's exactly the opposite. I think they're pursuing a very purposeful strategy uh, in order to accumulate power. Anything that helps them cobble together 50 plus one, even if it means being anti-science, even if it means being against free and fair elections, even if it means suggesting either the 2020 election was stolen or intimating that in 2022 or 2024, if Republicans don't like the outcome of elections, they'll simply overturn them. So again, I, I think you're watching a very purposeful strategy uh, by, by the Republican Party. I'm struck as I look through the arc of the time I spent or have spent in politics, 
and I think through, um, you know, Matthew was was on this campaign with George W. Bush. The, the first policy speech he gave in 2000 was expanding the federal role in education, and he did it in inner city Los Angeles. Can you imagine anybody in the Republican Party giving that speech now? Is Would anyone dare to give that speech? John McCain believed deeply in climate change. Uh, you know, Many people, George W. just John McCain and others believed in comprehensive immigration reform. All of those things seem quaint now. None of those things are um, not only debated with inside of the Republican Party. If anybody holds those beliefs, chances are they're on their way to being out of the party or they've left the party. Everything looks different than it did just a, uh, really just a few short years ago. Donald Trump gives people an identity or it reinfor- he reinforces their identity. He gives them a sense of purpose. He makes them feel powerful. And for a long time, you'd hear people say, oh, but, but watch what happens when he doesn't deliver for his voters. They're going to be so disappointed and they're going to run screaming from the room. And the truth is that it's not about what he delivers. He is the product. Donald Trump shows up. He's the product. And basically, they like his egomania. At one point, I read something where you actually predicted, you think we're going in a Trumpier, Trumpian, whatever the word is, direction, that by the end of 2022, we're going to be Trump on steroids. Is that really where you are right now? Absolutely. I don't think, I don't, first of all, I don't see anything that would pull us back from that. I think if you see the, the recent interactions that Donald Trump has had with, with voters and, and continuing his rallies, uh, nothing leads me to believe that we're re-examining or the Republicans are re-examining Donald Trump as the leader of the Republican Party. Uh, if anything, I think he's only tightened that grip. He's going to play an inordinate role um, in the off-year elections. He's going to pick nominees in important Senate races. Uh, I, I, you know, he, He's pushed people out. He's declared war on different segments of the Republican Party that that aren't following him. I, I think 2022 is likely to end with Donald Trump having a stronger grip on the Republican Party. And quite frankly, if he decides he wants to be the nominee in 2024, uh, I don't see that a lot of people can or will stand in his way. The only thing that could beat Donald Trump in 2024 is for somebody to be more Donald Trump than Donald Trump. And we watched that, quite frankly, in 2016, where several of the the potential nominees, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, they tried to out-Trump Donald Trump. Well, well, guess what? Donald Trump plays Donald Trump better than anybody else. He plays it, as you said, extraordinarily well. Uh, He gives people in the Republican base excitement. He, I, I can't remember how many times I've heard Republicans say, he says things that I know other politicians believe but are afraid to say. Tara, you narrated a program. It was about dismantling democracy, and it really underscored the importance of, of free and fair elections. And increasingly, we're seeing how uh, Mr. Trump weaponized the Department of Justice to try and overturn the election. And yet, in the wake of what happened on January 6th, the sacking of the Capitol, only two Republicans stood up against what happened and against the big lie. One of them was Liz Cheney. 
And we have some footage of her on the House floor. We're going to take a look at that right now and have you comment on the other side. Here it is. I will not sit back and watch in silence while others lead our party down a path that abandons the rule of law and joins the former president's crusade to undermine our democracy. As the party of Reagan, Republicans have championed democracy, won the Cold War, and defeated the Soviet communists. Today, America is on the cusp of another Cold War, this time with communist China. Attacks against our democratic process and the rule of law empower our adversaries and feed communist propaganda that American democracy is a failure. We must speak the truth. Tara, you know a lot of these folks. Two out of 262 members of Congress, not a lot of people to stand up against one of the worst, if not the worst day in, in our history in some ways. How do you explain that, that they're so complicit in this situation? It's just absolute craven political cowardice. Uh, to, to Robert's point, it's about holding on to power. They were unwilling to step forward when it mattered the most. I mean, literally, you had a violent mob of people who ransacked our capital to disrupt one of the most basic fundamental uh, institutional procedures of certifying our free and fair presidential election. And there were people there who were seeking out the vice president of the United States chanting, hang Mike Pence. This was the level of vitriol that had been incited by the current president of the United States at the time, who was a member of the Republican Party, where every single person in that chamber, their lives were in danger because that, that mob didn't care who they would have gotten a hold of. They weren't looking at whether they were a Democrat or a Republican because at that point they were attacking our institution. And the fact that that didn't move more members of Congress to stand up and speak out is one of the most devastatingly disappointing days um, beside all of the other emotions of how uh, upsetting the insurrection it was, uh, the insurrection was, but seeing that no one would stand up, no one of significance, the fact that every single Republican, minus a handful of the ones that may have been possibly involved in it, um, but that they wouldn't stand up in one voice for America, for what happened. You know, institutions don't protect themselves. It is up to us, it is up to the elected officials, it is up to the people to make sure that those institutions are protected. And they didn't do their jobs that day, outside of a handful. 10, 10 Republicans voted for impeachment, that's it? I mean, you've got you know, a handful on the Senate side, that's it? What does that tell you? How, the moral decay and the absolute abdication of their constitutional duty was on display by them standing back and not saying or doing what they could have done to completely extricate the party of Donald Trump from Donald Trump. That was the exit ramp, and they didn't do it. Matt, the term constitutional crisis is being used with greater frequency, and Stephen Levitsky, who wrote the book How Democracies Die, has talked about the fact that one of the other things the enablers learned this last time around was that they can, even if they're not successful in actually doing it, they can uh, present to their voters that they overturned an election. Not only will they be um, heralded for it, they, the voters will support that. So 
What does that mean for 2022 and 2024 in terms of constitutional crisis? Is this a runaway train? Can it be stopped? What do you think? Well, I I thought at the time last year that 2020 was the most important election in our lifetime. I actually now believe that was true at the time. 2022, in my view, is more important than what happened in 2020. And the reason is, is because after all what happened and after January 6th and what the how Republican officials have responded to that in such an abject anti-democratic way, if they get reelected or take more power, it's only going to encourage them to keep going down this path. And my view is we're in the midst of this constitutional crisis because we now have one of the major legacy parties who holds, as we've discussed, all kinds of levers of power and could hold the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate in the aftermath of 2022 could hold both of those bodies, as well as you enunciated various legislative bodies and governorships in this, even though it's it's a party that does not stand for where the majority of the country wants to go. And in a system where we're supposed to respect the minority, but the majority is supposed to actually be able to govern and have policy, we're no longer in a place where the majority can govern and have policy in this that you can look at almost every single big issue in that exists today where a near supermajority supports where the Democrats are. None of that's happening. None of that's happening. And so when you're in a system of government, a, democ- a democratic government, where the majority can't even get done what they want get want to get done, it means we're broken. We're fundamentally broken. And the other part I want to add on to the previous conversation, This is not about policy at all. And I think an underlying thing that we don't talk about enough, this is not about policy because Liz Cheney, who's hated now by the Republicans, agrees with all of the policies that supposedly Republicans stand for, including I'm upset about inflation, I'm upset about the border. Republicans can't stand her. So if it was about policy, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney would be heroes of the Republican Party. It's not. It's about a grievance. And I think the grievance is based in race, and I think the grievance and base is a changing diversity of the cult country. And so as the country has become multicultural, there is a segment of the population that can't stand that, that can't stand that. And Donald Trump figured that out before any other Republican did. And Donald Trump channeled that in, in, a, in a way that was harmful, but in a way that was politically successful as existed. We haven't seen that in our country. We haven't seen one party accumulate all of those sort of nativists and people that have that grievance into one political party and it take over a political party. This is the first time in our history that's happened where they all gathered in one party. We've had elements of that in the two different parties, but they were sort of guardrailed out of it. We now have one party occupied by that. So when we talk about policy, we miss what's really happening at the core of this, which is a campaign of grievance because of a dissatisfaction by a group of voters in our country with a changing nature of society. And that's the scary thing about it. Kristen, um, after 9-11, 68% of Republicans had trust that the government would do the right thing. Today, that figure is 9%. Do you see anything in your polling that really speaks to the fact that people even care about that? Or is this just about raw power at this point? There are a lot of Republicans who do feel like they and their own side have less and less power in America these days. And they viewed the other side as both having the capabilities uh, and intentions to to do them harm or to take power from them. 
So, you know, you can think about this is part of why Republicans have begun railing more against big tech, for instance. Um, their views that big tech now has an enormous amount of power. And back a decade ago, that power was not viewed as favoring one side or the other. But Republicans increasingly believe it is favoring Democrats. And so that's just one now added into the bucket of Republicans have long said that they feel the media is not in their camp. They have long said that Hollywood and sort of major cultural institutions are not in their camp. They have long said that higher education is not in their camp. And so now you, you have big tech and then also big business, the breakup between the GOP and business. You know, if we're thinking about power in society, it's not just residing in the government. There's power in culture. There's power in technology. There's power in business. And in all of those areas, Republicans do feel a bit under siege. And when you feel under siege, as they're looking around, who do they want in their foxhole with them? They feel like they want someone who's going to be tough and be a fighter. And Donald Trump has presented himself as that kind of person. Uh, and I think you can see other Republicans who have latched onto that kind of message have tended to do quite well. Uh, take someone like Ron DeSantis in Florida, for instance. He was kind of nowhere uh, when it came to the Republican Party uh, until he gave a speech at CPAC earlier this year, which was all about that sort of message. He, he sort of said what, what Matt Dowd just said, which was, this isn't about policy. Our party has spent too long uh, debating about policy. We just need to be prepared to fight. And it was that kind of a message that vaulted him up now, in, at least in my own polls, I see him at the top of the uh, way too early to be polling it 2024 field on the GOP side. Robert, a lot of people are concerned. We, we're talking about this problem and we all agree that we're defining it as a problem that um, election fraud could act or overturning elections could actually happen in the midterms or going ahead to 2024. So what is it that we could actually do to try and um, ensure that elections are not overturned going forward? It's a great question. And I'm, I'm, I will admit I'm not all too optimistic that the, the answer that I might give uh, here is in danger of happening. But I do think you need a, a much uh, you need much of the legislation that's been talked about in, in terms of ensuring the right, uh, the guarantee of, of people to be able to exercise their right to vote and to ensure that you're not seeing in, in state what's happening throughout the country in state legislatures, which is very <laughs> unconservative, if you will, which is taking local control away from those that conduct elections and handing it to some bigger entity, particularly a bigger entity that has seen fraud and abuse where there wasn't fraud and abuse. And so, look, I, I think and I hope that there'll be a, a more robust discussion, that there'll be uh, better policy answers that can try to garner the Mitt Romneys and the Richard Burrs uh, of the country into guaranteeing more of that right to participate and guaranteeing that right for both free and fair elections and that the outcomes will be seen as such. So again, I'm not optimistic that, uh, that as we go forward, we're not going to be gravely challenged, not, not differently than we were on January the 6th. They may, not, um, they may not storm the U.S. Capitol as they did at that point, but I think that the potential to have real consequence on our elections and in impacting our democracy is really no different than what we saw happen that winter day. Tara, you wrote a piece back in 2017 with the headline, I think it's, it's, it's time to admit things are not okay. And what you were talking about, um, again, we should be clear, predates Mr. Trump, the sort of drip, drip, drip of moral decay and uh, disregarding 
civility and decency, and basically, and this is key, rewarding bad behavior. I think part of what we're talking about is that it's frustrating because there's like no, you don't see much accountability. People are getting away with it and that emboldens them. But this notion of a sort of rewarding bad behavior, when did things start to go off the rails? You know, it's um, I, I'm sure there's lots of folks that will have different inflection points for them um, about where that happened. But, um, you know, Julian Zelzer wrote an interesting book called Burning Down the House, where he talked about the influence that Newt Gingrich had in the Republican Party back in the 80s and how he was um, he was laid the precursor, really, for the era of of Trumpism that we are living through now and the way that Republicans behave and use media and use political theatrics to get what they want. In the age of social media, you have this ability to have a mass uh, information communication uh, ability to spread information and do things where before you only had three major networks and then you had cable news, but you didn't have what the internet has given us now. And it's allowed folks to get away with being held accountable because you've been able to rally more and more people in your tribe to be um, part of that same, uh, you know, thought thought process, and as long as that continues and people don't pay attention, I think what happens is there there was a certain amount of political complacency that was going on in our country because we were prosperous and uh, things were going all right, and and then you know the Trump era kind of jolted everyone into going wait oh my goodness what has happened how did we get here, and I always caution folks that you know we get the government we deserve. We elect them. We hold them accountable. It's in our hands. So, you know, where did it go off the rails? I mean, I think there's different places where you can point to uh, rewarding bad behavior. Um, but our culture, you know, politics is downstream from culture. And we see that bad behavior is um, elevated all the time. That celebrity culture contributed to the rise of Donald Trump with him being beamed into, into these you know, living rooms every week on The Apprentice, um, there was a certain celebrity. We reward celebrity bad behavior all the time. And I think that that speaks volumes about us as a society. There needs to be some some inner searching and <laughs> reflection about that. But I think it's an overall societal problem about rewarding bad behavior and, not, and people not being held accountable for it. Matt, it's time to take a video question, and you're going to get this one because you've served on both sides of the aisles and because you live in Texas. So let's take a look at it right now. Hi, I'm Josh from Texas. Republicans tend to play hardball while Democrats pitch softballs. But if you look at the Supreme Court and voter suppression sweeping the nation, it seems to be working in Republicans' favor. Are Republicans modeling a new way of politics that Democrats need to imitate if they want to compete? So, Matt, how many times have you heard people say, um, you know, so much for Michelle Obama, this whole thing about when they go low, we go high. It's time for Democrats to, to play hardball, to get tough, to get down in the mud. Um, clearly, this isn't really new. But but the point is, what do you advocate for Democrats in terms of messaging to try and, and combat some of this? I think Democrats have always been a disadvantage on, on two things and they've shown up in, in, in direct form today. First, Republicans are much better at talking about campaigns and policies in terms of values, broad values, and that's what voters connect on. They don't connect on policy points, they connect on broad values. Policy is important because it signals a value. 
Democrats stay too much stuck in a policy and not as enough stuff on a, on a debate about what values are fundamental and connecting with voters on a really fundamental value basis. And that's where I think Democrats have lost where they could have won and Republicans have won where they should have lost in this. So that's the big one. And so I say you can go high, but you've got to go high with strength in compelling way. And you have to give up on this idea that we're in this process discussion, that we're going to somehow fix it. And you have to play hardball. Hardball is not wrong. You can be, as I said, you can be ethical and you can do it in a legal way. But Democrats still, and I think Joe Biden has for too long thought, thought for too long, I can convince the Republicans to be rational. That went away a many number of years ago in this process. Kristen, um, Politico wrote a piece talking about Oakland County, Michigan as being a bellwether, an important bellwether. It's an affluent, well-educated area. It's where the Romneys are from. And basically, the bottom line is that they now vote for Democrats. They don't they don't relate to white grievance. They relate to better education and child care. So but that's being sort of replicated around the country, that phenomenon of the Republicans are losing the suburbs. Potentially, is that, you know, is that cataclysmic for them? Republicans losing the suburbs is going to be a real challenge because even though you have redistricting coming up in the 2022 cycle and Republicans will control that process in many states, what we know from the census data that's already been released is that America's suburbs have been growing while rural America has been losing a share of its population. And so being a party that is primarily uh, gets a lot of its electoral strength from rural areas just isn't going to be sustainable long term. And there's only so long that things like the way you carve districts or the sort of more rural advantage you have uh, from the Senate, that'll only hold for so long. So if our nation suddenly is more polarized around density and education, that has a whole variety of consequences. And at the moment, Republicans do need to figure out how do you get a message uh, across about issues like the economy, immigration, et cetera, that can both resonate with a sort of working class and rural community uh, that with which Republicans have some strength, as well as those suburbs that used to be a big piece of the Republican coalition back a decade or two ago. Since you are the the youth vote whisperer, um, everybody's a whisperer on this pro on this program today. <laughs> you're talking about young people who who did turn out in record numbers in 2020, and I know you you researched and found that they really wanted to be part of the process, but they're not really voting for Republicans at this point. So we have a video question that goes to that. And Kristen, we'd like you to take first crack at it. Here it is. I'm Janet, Texas. And my question is, what is the GOP doing to attract young members to the party? And what actions can they take specifically at the local level to enact positive change? So in terms of what Republicans are doing to win over young voters, from my perspective, not enough. Um, I, I've, as you noted, I've written about this for a while that Republicans had actually done reasonably well with young voters um, in, in the 80s, even in the 90s, uh, to early to mid 2000s. Um, but around the time Barack Obama comes on the scene, Republicans begin to lose young voters by huge margins. And that doesn't abate. Um, we are still, the Republican Party still lo looking at losses of young voters of double digits. I think if Republicans want to have a chance with younger voters, um, the issues that they're currently talking to younger voters about are issues like free speech. Um, that's a huge piece of, uh, you know, uh, railing against cancel culture, 
You see that happen a lot on college campuses, but that's kind of the big animating issue that draws young people into, say, campus conservative groups or their affiliates. Um, but I also think climate change has to be a piece of this. Um, you find on the issue of climate change, there's a really big generation gap between older and younger Republicans. Now, that's not to say young Republicans support the Green New Deal, um, but it does mean that they want their party not to have completely abandoned this issue and to put forward something that is in line with their own principles that nevertheless acknowledges the problem and tries to do something about it. Tara, I want to ask you, uh, talk a little bit about the, the obstacles to growing the Republican Party. What do you see as the biggest obstacle they have to bringing more people in to their party? Well, first of all, unfortunately, the majority of what's coming out of the Republican Party as an establishment is not based in fact. It makes it difficult to see how that appeals to, to Matt Dowd's point earlier, how that appeals to the broader uh, constituency. It seems as though they, because the party has become a party of white grievance, because it's become a, a, a party of, of, of people who seem not to care as so much about ideas and policies that who are they really speaking to? Because the demographics of the country are changing and they're changing rapidly. So I think it's a challenge as long as they continue down this road of Trumpism and this road of illiberal belief systems um, and continue to be a party of grievance. It's a, a mainly a party of white grievance and that's a shrinking population. So the challenge there is how do you draw more folks in who don't subscribe to this uh, very narrow approach to governing, if that's what you want to call it. Um, if you look at what what's being discussed on Fox News and other networks every single night, um, I'm not quite sure where that appeals to folks in the areas, to Kristen's point, that are growing, the suburban areas, um, the areas where uh, the demographics do not align with what's being uh, spewed by the re current Republican Party now. Uh, I was around, I was on Capitol Hill in 2012 um, when the autopsy came out after Mitt Romney lost the election to Barack Obama, a winnable election for Republicans. And it's true, the entire playbook got thrown out. But what was in the autopsy was talking about if the party is going to sustain in the long run, to be sustainable, it must appeal to minorities and younger voters. We see that the, that there has been pretty much no effort to do that at all. It's been quite the opposite, uh, appealing to a constituency that is actually dying off um, and changing. So um, I, I think that the Republican Party in its current form is only shrinking. It's not doing anything whatsoever to expand. Matt, I want to get back to the existential threat to our democracy, um, which is just terribly concerning. In the book, uh, the Woodward and Costa book, Peril, it came out that Senator Utah Senator Mike Lee did know about the plan to try and overturn the election. Recently, um, independent Evan McMullen has come out and said he's going to challenge Senator Lee. And the centerpiece of his introductory ad is about the fact that the Capitol was desecrated, our democracy is sacred, we have to protect our democracy. I mean, this is the theme, it's the democracy theme. How effective do you think that's gonna be? Um, so Evan, I give Evan credit for, however he has tried to confront this in the last few years and speak out and speak truth about this. I think that the way, if Democrats are gonna succeed or our society is gonna succeed in how we talk about this, it has to be a, related to the reality of people's lives. And I think just talking about it as democracy's in trouble 
I don't necessarily think it relates to the majority of people in their life in that way, unfortunately. But I think you have to talk about it. Democracy and being in trouble means your voice is no longer going to be heard, which means you're no longer going to be able to have an impact on what's going on at the state capitol or at the U.S. capitol. They're taking your power away from you. Your ability to hold any politician accountable when the democracy begins to fail goes away. And so I think it has to be it has to be tied completely to that idea that why are they doing this? What's the reason they're doing this? And they're doing this so they no longer have to be accountable to you. And it doesn't matter who you is. It could be an African-American, it could be an Asian-American, could be a white American, could be a rural American, could be suburban, could be urban. But I think in the end, the only way it really resonates in, in with the American public is you have to tie the f- failure of democracy as a broad thing to basically what it actually really means. And I think it means you as an average American is going to lose out on your ability to hold any politician accountable, no matter what color your jersey is, that you're going to lose. They're taking away your ability to hold a politician accountable, and therefore your voice is no longer going to be heard. That, to me, resonates with people. But talking about the theory of democracy and the democratic norms most Americans are like, you know, what I don't know what that means and whatever, whatever it means, but it has to be related to something that touches their life. Robert, uh, Mr. Trump got 74 million votes in the 2020 election, which was 11 million more than he got, you know, the first time around. And he did it even though he'd been impeached twice and we have this horrific scourge of COVID. Do you think that the policy light, policy free GOP ever gets hip to the fact that maybe if they talked about child care and climate crisis and racial inequality and things that do touch people's lives, that maybe that would make a difference in terms of building the party? I don't know, James, you'll ever see them get into every one of those issues. I mean, there's an existential crisis that comes with an aging electorate for the Republicans that that will threaten. It'll take too long, but it will threaten their ability uh, to to govern and to to win elections because simply their voters are not going to be around forever and they're not expanding that party. Somebody said earlier, you know, seven of the last eight national presidential elections, Republicans have lost the popular vote. What's interesting is Are Republicans going to throw out that idea of having to change or needing to change the party, much like they did uh, in in 2012? Or, you know, I mean, we had no discussion, as you said, in an election in 2020 in which congressional candidates did pretty well, Senate candidates uh, Mm -hmm. did fairly well for the Republicans, but they lost the top of the ticket. There was zero discussion about, like, should we think about doing something different? In fact, it now looks like they're going to double down on exactly what happened in that race. But I think in the medium to long term, expansion of the party has to be something that GOP leaders are thinking about. And that will start with with younger voters. Uh, Hard to believe that we are actually almost out of time and we're up to final questions at this point, but we are. 
And Tara, I'm going to start with you on this because I guess about four years ago, I remember hearing you talk about the spirit of the American people and the ability for us to pull together. And, and you expressed skepticism that we would get to the point where we would be so divided that it would be toxic. How do you feel? <laughs> Do you have optimism left? Do you have, you've got to give people hope. You've got to. Um, how do you feel today? Uh, listen, I'm going to say that at the time, four or five years ago, when I was still saying I was hopeful that Trumpism wouldn't take over, it's been disappointing and, and alarming on many, many levels. But what has been encouraging to me and what I think is something that people should take away from this conversation is that it isn't over yet. And we, the people, still have the power to make a difference. And even though Donald Trump may have gotten 74 million votes last time around, more votes than the first time, and however we feel about that, as, as uh, alarming as that is, but there were more people who voted for Joe Biden who, who went out and stood in line for 10 hours if they needed to, that were willing to walk over glass to vote in the last election because they recognized the importance of exercising their right to vote and the power that we the people have to change and hold our, hold our leaders accountable. That's encouraging to me because we saw the largest voter participation that we've seen in this country in decades. So it woke people up. So I always, always say that their one upside about the era of Trumpism is that it, it took a lot of people off the sidelines and we see what's on the line now. Voting rights are on the line. Voting rights are so important. And on a state and local level, I think more and more Americans are getting involved and paying attention to what's going on because they do not want to lose this democracy. So the upside is more Americans are involved, more Americans are informing themselves and saying enough is enough. And I think that that is incredibly important if we're going to protect our democracy, because like I said, institutions, democracy, our constitution does not protect itself. It is up to us to be the guardians of our democracy. And we still have the opportunity to do that. Thanks for that optimism. <laughs> Matt, um, I actually did interview you four years ago. And at the time you were talking about how you thought that civility and decency and compassion and all those wonderful things um, would probably prevail. And you were very optimistic. And I know you have four children. And the question is really simple. Do you think your four children are going to live to see a more civil discourse in their lifetimes? Um, yeah, I do actually. Um, I'm I'm very concerned in the short term, but very optimistic in the long term because I have a fundamental belief that good tri triumphs over bad, that truth triumphs over lies, and that love triumphs over hate. I I believe that. I I look at the expanse of thousands of years of civilization, and and over that period of time, we became a more civil, less violent, um, more kind, more caring. Uh, humanity over that time. It doesn't mean that you don't have bad points in the short term. And we're in a bad point in the short term in this time. But I, in the long term for when my kids are 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 25 years now, I think that we are going to be a better country in this. I agree with Tara on this, that one of the things you sometimes have to see the really cruel and the really bad and really see hatred rear itself to understand that it exists and to under and then 
to have an ability to tear the scab off. And even though in the midst of it, it hurts and it's harmful mm-hmm. and we don't want to go through it, maybe we have to go through this to clean out a womb that has existed in American society for a long time that we haven't always addressed, that we haven't completely addressed in our society. And so in the short term, I'm incredibly concerned. In the long term, I have a fundamental belief, like Martin Luther King, the arc of justice. Uh, I believe in that. I believe in the arc of compassion and the arc of the kindness and the arc of all of that. But some of us and all of us who believe those things can't step back. We have to wade in. We have to wade in in a, in, a, in a serious way in this moment so that our kids can see that society that I think will come is going to depend on our fight today. Kristen, what, what is your silver lining out of this chapter, uh, which people just, we all think it's the worst chapter in our history. John Meacham, who's been on this broadcast, says it's not, that you know there have been worse times. Um, what, what can you tell people that might give them hope? What I really cling to is the fact that we had a lot of our institutions very tested over the last year, uh, year and a half, uh, whether it's through the pandemic with all of the, the challenges around the 2020 election. And yet our, our institutions have, have held. They have, they have had a lot of stress, but you have had a lot of stories of, I think, individual bravery of folks like, say, Brad Raffensperger down in Georgia, folks who have stood up. And, you know, we can think about the way that incentives have made our politics a lot worse. This sort of alludes to something that Tara was saying earlier. You know, the incentives nowadays are to say things that are as loud and kind of out there as possible because that's what will get a strong reaction. That's what will go viral. But you do have a handful of folks that have acted sort of against their own interests and stood up and done brave things. Um, and so seeing folks that, that even knowing that there will be a political cost to their actions, nevertheless do it, is the sort of thing that has given me some hope. Robert, your parents introduced you to politics when you were very young. Uh, reliable sources say that your mother took you to, didn't get a babysitter, took you to the League of Women Voters meeting where you were there taking it all in. So that's going back away. You have a long view. You also have a teenage, I think he's a teenage son, Ethan. If he came to you, and this is the last word of the show, Robert, if he came to you and he said, I don't know, I'm not sure I'm going to vote in the midterms because I'm worried about whether or not they're going to be fair or whether there's going to be some, you know, shenanigans going on that would would sort of constitute fraud. What would you say to, to Ethan? I would say that uh, if you're worried about the outcome, if you're worried about the direction of your country, then the, the worst thing you can do is to, to walk off of the playing field rather than to participate on the playing field. And to summarize some of what all of what's been said, I do think we have encountered far worse times in our country's history, far more polarizing times. Um, far more existential times to our democracy uh, and to the fabric uh, of our nation. And and it actually, when I talk to young people, whether it's my son or or others, they understand in a way how important the crises that we face as a country, things like climate change, things like the pandemic and, and all that has to be done around it. It's that sort of enthusiasm and their excitement at thinking about things differently, about reform, disruption, that actually make me incredibly hopeful for what we'll see in the future. Because I think they understand 
while they've watched us do some of it and, and may be critical and think we haven't gotten it right, they're actually eager to get their chance uh, and fix it on behalf of all of us. I love being right. I said you were the perfect panel to tackle this topic, and I was right. And we're so grateful to you for being here today, for donating your time and your talent, for your candor, your insights, and your hope. Thank you for that. Thanks for joining us here today in the other Washington, Washington, Connecticut. Until we see you back here next time for Common Ground, I'm Jane Whitney. Take care. I'm your host, Jane Whitney, with heartfelt thanks to you for joining us. Thanks as well to our distinguished guests for helping us to see a complex issue through a different lens, as our hope of finding common ground goes on. For more information on this podcast, or to watch the broadcast version of Common Ground, visit ctpublic.org forward slash common ground.